Welcome to the MRA Digest Podcast. I am your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University. I will be ho- joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown, the Grady Memorial Gastroenterology Fellowship Site Director. Uh, in the latter half of the show, when we speak with our guest. Um, so, if you're joining us for the first time or repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and discuss the more salient points via the use of clinical cases. Today we have a really great episode for you. We're going to be covering the ACG guidelines on upper gastrointestinal and ulcer bleeding. And to do it, we have uh, a fantastic guest with you. I won't spoil the surprise. Uh, but a couple things before we get started. Uh, if you have not left us a review or liked the podcast or subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, stop it right now. Give us a like, give us a review, and then hit play again. Uh, and you know, while you're listening to the podcast, feel free to follow along with the article itself uh, or the accompanying visual summary on the Emeroid Digest website. Uh, and both the link to the website, the visual summary, and the paper will be in the show notes. Uh, okay, without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, we have a fantastic guest, uh, Dr. Alan Barkin, uh, and I'm going to give him an introduction. Uh, he is a professor of medicine uh, in the Division of Gastroenterology at McGill University and the McGill University Health Center in Montreal, Canada. Uh, He is a recipient of the D.G. Kinnear uh, Chair in Gastroenterology at McGill University, holding a degree in uh, a medical degree and a degree in epidemiology and biostatistics from McGill University. Uh, He has been the recipient of many national and international awards. Uh, He's published over 800 peer-reviewed articles and abstracts and given over 600 international presentations on emerging digestive endoscopic technologies with an emphasis on methodological, clinical, and cost-effectiveness trials in the treatment of upper GI bleeding, biliopancreatic diseases, and colorectal cancer screening. Uh, He is also the current chair of Colorectal Cancer Screening and Implementation Committee uh, within the province of Quebec. Um, Most recently, he was awarded the Visiting Clinical Scientist Award Distinguished Service Award by the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology. Uh, Dr. Barkin, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for the prestigious invitation of joining your podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Perfect. Uh, And I'll I'll kick it to Jason to sort of get us started. Dr. Barkin, first of all, again, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We really, really appreciate that. Um, Part of the idea behind this podcast is that um, we like to not only go into the guidelines um, so that our, our listeners can hear a little bit more about how they're put together and what they mean and what we think some of the highlights are, but, but also the people behind that process. Um, academic medicine is a, is, a, is a challenging path, and it's a path that requires a lot out of the individual to give, and it requires a lot to even get into the position to be able to be called upon by these various societies and groups to, to contribute. And so one of the things we like to ask is we have a lot of medical students, residents, early GI fellows, early career GI faculty who listen, and they're wondering, how could I even get to be somebody like Dr. Barkin? What does that even look like? And so we just wanted to hear a little bit about your story, how you got into medicine, got through training, um, and then also in particular, the impact of, of mentorship on that journey for you. 
Sure, sure. Well, thank you very much. And I'm happy to try and share a little bit uh, with the um, disclaimer that this is obviously applies to me and it's very, very different. And I do want to mention that it's, there's no two ways to achieving whatever you want to achieve. It doesn't have to be what I've done. Uh, there are many, many other much more worth, worthwhile things that, that you want to may want to do. Uh, but I think that you need to make the most of the opportunities as you go along. And I think good people do that. Uh, if you want to know specifically what happened with me, I kind of went through an accelerated pathway that we have here in, uh, through French uh, uh, French schools from France and in Quebec, uh, and then got into university quite quickly, maybe too quickly, by the way, that's that's not too important right now. Did internal medicine, and then during my year, of, of uh, I did a year of chief medical residency year, which at the time was a dedicated year of chief, chief medical residency. Interestingly, and I say this, and every, everybody knows this um, in, our, in our group here, I did not want to do GI. I wanted to do respiratory medicine. And uh, why? Because I'd worked with mentors in chest that I had tremendous respect for clinically. I was always very interested in bedside medicine. And sure enough, when I went to apply, the guy who was my mentor, my hero, looked at me and said, we have no room for you. Um, and I said, oh, okay. And then so I turned around and my colleague, who was uh, also a, a resident in, in um, internal medicine at the time, who was my best friend, said, well, I'm going to GI, you know, whether you hold a bronchoscope or hold a gastroscope, you'll hold a scope that will help you. Um, and, you know, you, you can make it as internal medicine-y as you want to with the, the technical side, but also the cognitive side. And I said, oh, you know what, you know. Sure, why not? Let's give it a try. Uh, and that's how I got involved in GI. It's my second choice, not my first choice. And I do use this, and I do mean this. It's a, I think it's a very good example where, you know, to, to get to what you want to go to, there's not one path. And, and I think um, if you start with a set, as we see today, and I realize I, I trained a long time ago, a long, long time ago, and now you have to be so... Um, thoughtful and plan ahead because there's so much competition and so on. And I respect that. And that's true. But I think anybody who thinks that they're going to get from point A to point B going through the pre-planned uh, intermediates is probably wrong. And you may not even end up in point B and still do very well for yourself. So I think that's an important component of it. Um, you also asked, I think, a very important question is uh, how, how I went forward and, and with mentorship. And uh, I've always gone through the, the personal relationships with people, people who I respect, people who who, uh, I, I, who were my mentors. And I had a whole bunch of them. Uh, and uh, some clearly stand out in my mind. Peter Cotton, you may or may not know, who was yeah. an ERCP god. Uh, you know, I, I met when he was in Duke University, come from the UK, and we, we ended up being very close friends over the years. Uh, and, uh, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. My dad was a doctor as well, and, and he's also very much influenced me. And finally, the person paradoxically, whose chair I hold now from McGill also was an amazing, amazing bedside clinician, probably the best I've ever met ever, and, uh, and, and who really influenced me a lot in, with the importance of bedside medicine uh, as such. A lot of stuff I've done, by the way, is purely bedside related. All the research I've done is, it's, it's for the great majority, not all, but 80% of it is stuff that I'm interested in as a clinician. And then yeah. I'm kind of trying to figure out how, how to manage it and so on. And then add the technology assessment side, because I ended up doing a master's in epidemiology somewhere along the way. I would mention to you, interestingly, uh, that I'm an identical twin. My brother is a liver transplant surgeon who does wow. ERCPs as well as I do. And he ended up doing a master's in epidemiology as well without wow. us ever planning on either of this. And we actually published <laughs> the first Lancet uh, uh, published study comparing open to laparoscopic colostectomy, which just shows you how old I am, uh, in interestingly. 
Um, so it's kind of, and I guess that interaction and synergy led to a lot of the original work I did in biliary pancreatic diseases, ERCPs, and so on. I, I won't bore you with, with what are really details as such. But I think the key is mentorship is very, very important. I actually used to give a lecture on mentorship at the SG yearly annual course in July, you know, for the um, in the U.S., the trainees, and that's one of my fondest, fondest uh, lectures that I give because I, I actually did some research on it. I had to, to around it and so on. And it's very important. It's tremendously important. And, and what people don't understand, I think, is the trainees always think it's in one direction from the more senior person to the more junior person. It absolutely is not the case. It goes in both directions tremendously. And I think uh, two things I would mention, but uh, other than highlighting the importance of mentorship is that don't underestimate as a junior person what you bring to the more senior person. And also uh, be aware that you probably need multiple mentors over time that fulfill different needs as you go along, uh, different aspirations, provide you different perspectives on, on what is a very complex life, you know, uh, an academic life. And it, has, uh, it has obviously the bedside to me is still the most important thing. The research is critical, but that's OK, because if it's led by the bedside, then you're good. The teaching, uh, I do teaching. I love teaching, but I do it. I, the, my main reason, I think, I know this shouldn't be a motivation, is because I was afraid I'd be too lazy to stay up to date with the literature. So I figured the best way of, of, of having to be kept, uh, you know, uh, held to a standard was to have to, to, to have to teach. Because I think teaching is a privilege. And, and I think that you can never, ever, um, I was going to use other words, but now on this podcast, uh, tell lies, uh, tell lies or, or, or things that you don't know about or that you assume. You just, the truth, and then and when I don't know, I say I don't know, we go and we look it up on UpToDate or a textbook or, or, or go in PubMed and, and try and decide and so on. And what I do right now, the, the way I, I, I round on my GI service is I learn some of the GI because there's a number of areas in GI that I, I don't keep quite as much up-to-date as, as, as some others, although I do try and, and do a reasonable job of it. But also the, the internal medicine residents who come through teach me some internal medicine, which evolves enormously on a day-to-day -day basis and so on. So that's how I kind of try and stay, stay up to date. And that, I think, provides the fun part that I enjoy in, in academic medicine. The last component, because I, I have a tendency to talk too much and we're going to spend the whole time on this, but this is probably as much an important to me anyways, if you if you have junior people around, is the, is the, uh, the cultures, traveling. Mm. Uh, academic medicine uh, has provided me with an incredible, incredible platform to be able to interact with different cultures, and I mean all over the world. Uh, I, I come from myself from French, English, Canadian, and French, uh, Jewish, and, and Catholic backgrounds, and so on. And and I've I had the chance to kind of you know uh, visit not only Europe but Asia and Africa. And more recently, I've been doing some volunteer work in Africa the last few years, except for COVID, unfortunately. And it's such a privilege, such an eye opener, and and such for me uh, fun. Uh, to be able to interact with people. Uh, I do mentorship at distance to give you an idea with people in Lebanon after they had a terrible accident uh, um, uh, there. And uh, I, I've mentored people and we've actually published people who have actually never met face to face, you know, that you can do by email and so on. And, and that has allowed the, uh, some people to move forward, I'd like to think a little bit, but they've yeah. allowed me to remain interested and, and, and to remain motivated. So I've learned and gotten a lot out of, out of such type of exchanges. And this is the nice side about academic medicine. So I can only emphasize also this multicultural exposure uh, that allows you to be able to incorporate things. And last thing I'll say is, every, anytime you see people saying, I'm the best at what I do, you know, and uh, at, at some of these endoscopic courses, I've, I've, I've given lectures all over the world. And I can tell you, I've met people in small 
villages in India that, whose name I cannot remember anymore, no, the name of the village, where I saw probably the best endoscopist I ever saw in my life, who you'll never read about, who you'll never yeah. know about. And that type of humility is very helpful for an academician to have. You know, Don't take yourself too seriously. Be humble. And I think it's absolutely key to being able to have this kind of exchange from mentor to mentee and, and the privilege of, of academic interactions. Well, I appreciate I'll stop that. I'll stop no, that, that was... So um, I appreciate your sharing that, that part of your story, your advice and your perspective is certainly something that I will highlight for trainees that I work with at all levels and we'll be referring them to this portion of the podcast specifically for that. Jim, if I've got another minute, I just want to ask one other question. For mentees that are getting ready to start or approach this relationship, what's your biggest piece of advice to them in terms of how they can present themselves, persistence pays, whom to select, that type of thing. So uh, I'll tell you, um, I, I'm not going to skirt the question. I don't think there's a set um, a set rule, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think that the mix, the, the, the match between a mentor and a mentee is absolutely critical. And the type of mentor I went for or the type of mentee I'm looking for is probably totally different than the the. the the female gastroenterologist sitting in my next office and the male gastroenterologist sitting in my next office, just the yeah. interactions are different. So I've always said, if you're being honest with me and true as to what you want to do, I will work with you. It's my job and it's what I'd like to do. Um, but the only thing that I, that, that I, I cannot tolerate is, uh, is bull crap. You know, uh, you is be honest and tell me, and yeah. tell me, I want to get a job here or there, and I want to publish, and I don't care about the topic. I can deal with that. I can deal. But what I don't like is, is you know, is is that they that people feel that they would have to 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 say things just because maybe I want to hear it. Yeah. Certainly, that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear what you're all about. Period. So we can interact at a, at a more honest, uh, trustworthy level, uh, as such. So what I look, what I say to people, I usually tell them. I said. Go in, tell, meet the person, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, move on and find someone else. Because yeah. if you have to kind of, if you've got to, not lie, but if you've got to not be yourself when you choose a, a mentor, that may not be the best fit in the first place. So just yeah. be yourself, and if it's well-received, you may have hit pay dirt. And, and if it hasn't, that's not a, a bad thing. It just means you need to find someone else. And again, I don't think only you need to find multiple mentors probably to fulfill different requirements, different needs. And it's not just in academics. It's also, you know, life, work, balance, uh, personal, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's at all levels that, that, it, uh, that, that you need to find these types of, of relationships. Absolutely. Does that answer your question? Uh, it really does. We're on the same wavelength, and I appreciate you highlighting that. Okay. Uma always knows this is the point where I have to hand the baton because <laughs> I'll keep going for the entire time. <laughs> I know. It sounds like Dr. Yeah. Barkin will, will go with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did want to, you know, I did want to get to the guidelines. <clears throat> That's in part what we're here for. Um, so we're going to be discussing the ACG guidelines on upper GI ulcer bleeding. Uh, it came out in 2021. So I think actually probably a lot of the listeners, uh, you know, are familiar with them. But um, I kind of just wanted to maybe use a couple cases to to hopefully dive in a little bit deeper and ask some questions that sure. we don't usually have an opportunity to ask. Um, so I have, without further ado, we'll just start with case number one. Okay, uh, they're a little drawn out, so we'll we'll just kind of work through them and see kind of where we end up. Sure. Um, so this is Miss uh, Miss Triage. Uh, she is a 43-year-old female, uh, hypertension. 
as she presents the hospital really with just two days of dark stools. Uh, she denies any other complaints, uh, does not use, you know, NSAIDs or alcohol. Um, short stem, uh, before we get to any clinical data, okay, let's say in this like hypothetical world, you happen to be at the bedside with this patient. That's all the information you have. What, what other, I guess, questions do you, you know, right. are you going to ask to find out? And then what are you, I guess, looking for? Cause I guess, because you do a lot of, you know, bedside stuff, what are you looking for, I guess, right. clinically, like physical exam wise right. that, that make you so, so yeah. absolutely. And I presume that you're, the question really relates that you're the first person seeing the patient uh, as such. So I'll, I'll draw on my, cause I used to work a lot in Emerge uh, for about 15 years as the internist and I loved emergency work. And I learned, so just to tell you, uh, I think it's clear probably to most people, but it all depends on the state of the patient. The more unstable the patient is, the more you forget history physical, start with the actual management and move backwards uh, and go back to the start. But if, if things are stable, then you have time to go more with the classical internal medicine approach and, and proceed. Uh, I do like to mention briefly as well that don't forget, everything you do, you already have a pre-test probability from the moment you see the patient enter in the room and then you keep adjusting your post-test probability based on whatever you see whatever you ask and so on. So the idea here for, for with that as a, as a construct, if you will, which we all do every day at the bedside, is to, to determine in what is a stable person who has a history of hypertension and not much more than that, presented with dark stools, is stable. So you have time to take the history. The history, obviously, the age, uh, presence of uh, comorbid illnesses for the patient, medications that they're taking, uh, family history, depending on what, you know, Osler Weber Rendu, for example, uh, or uh, other issues, uh, history of uh, liver disease, uh, 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 therefore also, as you said, alcohol intake and, and so on. So those, you basically go through your entire history and try and determine whether the patient is at, is at potential risk for a negative outcome. That's the first component. Um, interestingly, the predictors of mortality today are not cardiac and respiratory comorbid illnesses. They're more CKD as well as cancer as the most, as the highest. Uh, cancer, I think the reason is obvious, a patient presenting with GI bleeding, particularly if it's a malignant bleed, which is not that common, but coming, becoming more common. Uh, and as for CKD, presumably because of platelet dysfunction and associated coronary disease and so on and so forth. So, so those are the things you would ask for. The first thing, therefore, is to determine whether the patient is at, at risk for negative outcomes. The antithrombotics are always important. There are so many patients on antithrombotics these days, so that's an important thing to kind of to sort out and make sure, you know, the number of people who will take for example, Alka-Seltzer, I don't know if you know what that has tons of aspirin in it and they keep taking it and then, you know, they'll come in and, and so on. Uh, so it's also important, you know. Um, uh, so I think I always make sure I know what they're taking medications-wise and that we're clear and antithrombotics is an issue. And then also the last component on the history and, and goes into physical as well is, is the patient with regards to presentation at risk such that they're going to have to stick around, or do I think I may be able to actually send this patient home uh, directly from the emergency room, which I know we'll probably come to uh, in a little while. So those are the things you want to know. But of course, if your patient has had syncope uh, and is dizzy and presents, and then on his on the, uh, physical exam is tachycardic, has a postural change, uh, and so on, it's an issue. If the patient presented with melina, it's very different than the patient is having active red blood hematemesis, for example, and so there. So all so on history, you want to know with regards to comorbid illnesses, try and get a risk profile for the patient complicating factors such as antithrombotics, then on physical examination to know whether hemodynamic stability or not. And with those together, you can determine the prognostic 
prognostication of the outcome of the patient, as well as the urgency of the endoscopic uh, intervention. Those are the things I would mention. Does that answer your okay. question? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I like kind of what you were, what you were kind of going towards with whether or not the patient has to stick around or be discharged. So, because I kind of want to touch on a little bit of that. Yeah. So to answer some of these, to fill in a little bit of her history, she's not on any anticoagulation, no family history of GI bleeding disorders, you know, no prior surgeries, you know, no no CKD. Um, so she's actually, you know, quite quite healthy, it seems. And then, you know, vitals-wise, her heart rate's 89, her blood pressure's 125 over uh, 87. Um, you know, she's no increased work of breathing, setting at 100%. Uh, and then I guess just for a couple labs, just for the sake of, you know, filling out a potential like Glasgow Blatchford score, mm-hmm. her hemoglobin is 12.5 and her BUN is 10. Okay. Um, so if we punched in all, and she's saying she has dark stools. Um, so if you punched in all of her numbers, technically she would have a, a Glasgow Blatchford score of one. Um, I'm curious. Maybe we just like pump the brakes and stop and just talk about um, yeah. the the G, yeah the score let itself. About, like, let me talk to you about this yeah, score yeah. stratification in the first place, yeah. and then the, the the Blatchford score, which I think if you need to remember one, I mean now it's you know it's available on 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 the smartphone, but if you need to remember one, probably is the one that's the most used. Although there are others, uh, and Lauren Lane. I have tremendous respect for and who is the lead author on the guidelines talks about one uh, that's AI based and that they developed uh, at, at his uh, at, from his shop. So um, the, the risk stratification scales are probably more helpful right now in the context of when you first see the patient with regards to deciding who you can send home, like on the low end of scale. Uh, at the high end, we, we know who, who what predicts rebleeding and, and those are not bad, but most of them, when you look at the higher end prediction ones, end up requiring other things that happen while the patient is in the hospital. So for example, multiple blood transfusions, if they have episodes of rebleeding, all these things will increase mortality. And by that, by then, we all know they're, they're high risk. What we don't know and what has not been looked at is who det- what we determine who goes to the ICU, for example, based on sole high-risk stratification and so on. But where we can use them is on low risk, and that's where the data that is now present is available. So the Blatchford has been not only is probably the best um, uh, uh, tested and, and, and studied in this context, although Rockall, the Rockall score has been as well, um, but is probably the most useful one and if the, I think would be the one to remember. So that's based on the BUN, on hemoglobin, uh, systolic blood pressures, as well as the, the pulse rate, and then whether the patient had melina or not, syncope, and the presence of comorbid diseases, which is hepatic disease or, or cardiac failure. And if you look at the Blatchford score, anybody who presents with melina already has a score of one. So already, that's it. And why? Because it turns out that based on the number of observational studies that have been performed and a couple of interventional studies, although they, 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 we are weak on interventional studies in risk stratification scores in GI bleeding, um, the, that tells you that if a score of 0 or 1 is probably the patient can be sent home. And this is actually the recommendation of this guideline. Uh, it was actually, we, we made the recommendation before as well on a previous guideline published in 2019, but I think hopefully it drives the point home. Why? Because the likelihood, you have to follow me here, the likelihood that your patient will be misclassified as a patient who you think is low risk, but in fact will need an intervention is less than 1%. So it's about 1% or so. So this is, we forgot to sensitivity, negative predictive value, and so on. A score less than one is performs quite well. And we felt that that was a reasonable approach 
um, with regards to, you, you can even go to 100%, but then you have so few patients that it's not worth it, right? Um, in this context, you have about 25% of patients who fit this criterion. Um, and also by going from a, a threshold of zero to a threshold of one, you actually increase a little bit the specificity, which may have some benefits as well. So it, to, to, tra to translate all this, when you take a history from someone who comes in and all they have is Molina, I mean, nothing else. No comorbid illnesses. They were not hemodynamically unstable. The B1 and hemoglobin look good. That patient can actually be sent home. Yes, oh yes, oh I know what you're wondering. You Come on, that cannot be. I've never seen that performed in my emergency room, you're gonna say. Well, sadly, that's unfortunately the case. Uh, but, and in fact, there have been studies looking at this. There's even a randomized trial once done where, where they actually tried to implement a rule but none of the people taking care of the patients would follow the rule even after the gastroenterologist suggested it. And, 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 and it's not a criticism. It shows you, first of all, what our bias is in practice and how difficult it is to change practice. So but the take-home message is if you have a Blatchford score for a patient that is zero or one, that patient can be scoped as an outpatient at the next elective list, probably not a week from now, but over the next couple of days or so. And we have not many, but a couple of interventional trials that have been done looking at this where there were small studies, but there was no uh, misclassification in the interventional study. And also it showed that they decreased 25% of all admissions related to uh, upper GI bleeding. So it has a significant impact on whether the over, overcrowded uh, beds in, in hospitals and so on. So it's an important take home message to consider uh, having the Blatchford score and, and using it like that. I hope that that addresses the, the key question yeah. you had. Yeah, I just, I, I kind of wonder from your standpoint, are there, I mean, I guess it sounds like, you know, if you don't have, if you're, if you're a gastroenterologist and you don't have any appointments out until like six weeks out from now, you might say, oof, you know, maybe, maybe I scored right one, but I might. So, so I'm curious, like, yeah, what, what makes you want to deviate versus like strengths, limitations of the score? I, I'm curious. Right. So I think the score provides the evidence and the data. Well, then, like everything else and all the guidelines that you're going to see, this is not just for the guideline we saw. The guidelines provide you the data, the interpretation by hopefully some reasonably enlightened people, you know, uh, maybe. Uh, and in the end, and uh, using the evidence and going ahead using the grade process to actually translate them into a level of recommendation. But of course, these are just general recommendations you can tailor uh, given to, uh, according to patients. I'll give you a perfect example. A Jehovah's Witness you may not want to maybe take the, manage the patient the same way. Th think about the transfusional thresholds that we have, uh, you know, if, and, and we've had, and I actually have been, I've been in front of that position twice in, in my career. So as, as an example, so the same thing here, there is also a pragmatic component. If you say, gee, this patient's gonna go, but the only way I can scope them is to bring them into the eMERGE and so on. Well, you know, there's, that's, there's also a reality. It doesn't mean that the data aren't correct and that the recommendations aren't correct but you may have to tailor the approach to the reality in which you're, you're working. And then hopefully in the same process, you then go and try and maybe find a way to have open slots so that these patients can be handled and you don't have to end up scoping all these people in the emergency room and overburdening the emergency room or bringing them upstairs in an acute way where they could come back and so on. So I think there, there, there are two different issues there. The one is the actual data, the interpretation of the other recommendation, and the other one is the personalizing it to the context in which it presents, either with regards to the patient, yourself, the, the resources available. Nice, nice. Um, so I was gonna, I was gonna ask a little bit about: Are there? You had mentioned a little bit like the Rock Hall score. Um, are there any other? I mean, I, 
I, I like to not be super bogged down with a bunch of different yeah. scores for yeah. people to use. But I don't know. Are there any that we should that you would mention that say, oh, this helps you know? So stratify. Yeah. So there are a bunch of scores I've been looked at. I, I, I don't want to because a number of people are friends of mine who developed them. I don't want to <laughs> identify one versus the other versus the other. I'll just stick to the data, and this, I always kind of try and stick to the data so that there's no the personal opinion level is is minimal. The best data are with the Blatchford. That includes uh, observational study of over 3,000 patients merged from different uh, databases that have looked at this, predicting whether the patient would require an intervention, a hospital-based intervention, let it be transfusion, hemostatic therapies, either endoscopic or uh, in IR or even surgery, and death. Those are those were the outcome where the Blatchford scale was the best. If you look at rebleeding, the, 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 the prediction is not as clear. Uh, Rockall does better. A couple of others also do better as well. But I think if you want to remember the Blatchford, that's, that would be the one I would like to remember. I, I would be um, uh, remiss if I did mention that uh, Lauren Lane and, and his group actually published on a, uh, I believe it was in Gastro uh, a couple of years ago, on an AI-based uh, risk prediction model that actually had 100%. Uh, prediction as such, but I have not seen it uh, publicized more than that. I cannot comment on it more than that, whereas the Blatchford is, is pretty easy and easily available, and you go to, you know, it's 99% uh, or, or so. So uh, I, I think that, and I think the, I remember, I, I forget what the confidence interval was uh, for this. So I think the Blatchford would be a reasonable one to remember, and you don't have to remember 12 different ones, and it's transparent uh, as opposed to an AI solution, which I think was not as uh, as mm. I didn't know exactly everything that went into it and so on. So the one I've used is, is the Blatchford, but it's not used enough. And already if people take home the message that we're, we've just decided not, we're way ahead of the game. Right. I absolutely agree. Uh, okay. So we'll push the case forward a little bit. So, um, you know, luckily, so actually, you know, they decided to discharge uh, Ms. Triage from the from the ED because they were able to get an appointment in four days for an EGD. Okay. Um, so, so she comes back for the EGD. Uh, and it's, uh, esophagus is normal, uh, but in the prepyloric antral region, you notice an eight millimeter ulcer with an adherent overlying clot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no like active spurting or oozing, but there are just like you know some small blood clots within the stomach. Uh, I guess you know you're. I'm catching you. We're stopping in the endoscopy itself and saying one. I guess. Uh, what are your thoughts on this lesion, and then what do you? What's your next move endoscopically? Right. So first is what is an adherent clot? I think that's the question. No, because uh, what is you know uh, when you look at the uh, the um, uh, kappa agreement ratings, even with a spurter, there is not a hundred percent agreement between endoscopists. Okay. So really, um, so what I use for whatever it's worth is when, so the, the high-risk lesions we agree are active oozing, either spurting or oozing, or a non-living visible vessel, which has also been called a pigmented protuberance, uh, or the adherent clot. Those are the four high-risk lesions. The adherent clot to me, and the difference between an adherent clot and a non-living visible vessel is when you stare at the lesion, if the clot is so big that if you had to pick one spot of where you want to do therapy, you're not sure where it is on that surface, that's an adherent clot. If you say, and you look and you say, this is where I have to go, then to me that's a non-being visible vessel. And that will take care of the obvious the extremes, but also some of the gray in, in the middle, okay? And it's important because the management of non-being visible vessel is, is of the order of uh, like a active oozer uh, spurter. 
those need to be treated endoscopically will benefit subsequently from PPI post-successful endoscopic therapy. However, the adherent clot is a little bit different. Interestingly, the, the data from the intervention of adherent clots comes from older randomized trials, not really in the era of PPIs. And this is why in the guidelines, we really couldn't be sure what to do with the adherent clot. But at the bottom line, you need to know what to do. So I'm going to tell you what I do and what, what the data, what my interpretation of literature is. So the recommendations are probably are that it's not clear that you need to do endoscopic therapy. You can probably do high dose PPI therapy alone. However, if you're comfortable about what you're doing, which, and I, I consider that, that that's what I do, is I will go ahead and proceed with endoscopic therapy at that point in time. So again, we agree it's an adherent clot, it's not a non-bling visible vessel. Now what many people forget about from these older randomized trials I told you, is that you actually first have to inject with epi in the four quadrants before you go ahead and cheese wire the clot. And then if you've done enough of these, you understand why. <laughs> because when you cheese wire the clot, you can get surprised. So don't forget to first do four quadrant injections with epinephrine. Then you go ahead and cheese wire. So obviously with all the, the, the issues, the technical issues that this represents, meaning you need to have someone experienced assisting you. You need to have good visualization. You can't put yourself in the position that if the Red Sea starts pouring out, that you're completely blinded by the by the flow of blood. So you need to get an idea, and that's very easy to do. You just a little squirt of water, and you see where gravity is, and then you can control and, and position the patient accordingly, or position your scope tip accordingly. So once you're ready to go ahead and cheese wire, you're not going to be covered in blood if you're going to have active spurting. So coming back to the uh, to the question at hand, so you do four quarter injection, you do cheese wiring with a, a regular. Um, uh, um, uh, snare uh, or either cold or, or, or hot without no hot no hot you don't you don't uh, hook it up to it but you just to, to dissect it in cold fashion and then you treat what's beneath it and if you see a, a clean based ulcer great which you'll see sometimes if you see a pigmented dot that's also a low risk lesion that's fine as well uh, but if you go ahead and see a, a non-bleeding visible vessel or if you have oozing or spurting, then you would go ahead and treat it. And so then the question is what to treat with. So the, the evidence-based answer is that you can treat with whatever you bloody well want. Did you get the pun? Bloody well? <laughs> whatever you want to use. However, injection of epinephrine alone is not as good as anything else. So if all you do, so when I, when I uh, volunteer in Africa, sometimes that's all they have. That's fine. It's better than doing nothing, but it's not as good as anything else. So you can do um, uh, uh, clips, you can do thermal, uh, you can do combination of injection followed by thermal, or combination inject and clips, although clips injection followed by injection is probably a safer approach, although we don't have a huge amount of data on that, and only some secondary analysis suggesting that it's best to do it in that sequence. Uh, uh, and, then, and, and that's how I would proceed for that given patient. If you want, we can discuss later where the hemostatic um, products, uh, the topical hemostatic products fit in this. Uh, we can discuss where the over-the-scope clip fits in this as well. Uh, I can discuss it now or later. I presume you'll probably... We will get... I, yes, we will get to it. <laughs> I figured, I figured. That's fine. I, uh, I'm just setting the stage for your later questions. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Okay, you're very good. So so that's, that's what I would do. But uh, again, if you, all you want to do is, oh, okay, forget this. I'm out of here. It's probably an idea in cloud where I can just hide those PPI. That's also acceptable as well. There's some secondary analyses, uh, subgroup analyses from the large PPI uh, IV randomized trials, namely the one from Joseph Sung and Yan from a few years ago that suggested that as well. Um, and so that's that's would be my, my answer to you. I hope that's helpful. 
No, that's good. Um, I don't want to make this a totally endoscopically focused podcast, even though I love endoscopy. Um, but, but what I guess is going to make you steer towards cheese wiring slash like snaring off the clot versus saying, "Ooh, maybe we should, yeah. you know, hold off." Yeah, so, I mean, I so, know a little bit positioning, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, I, 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 yeah. So first of all, you never want to do something you don't feel comfortable doing. That is really, really important. And you may not feel comfortable doing something you would usually feel comfortable doing in certain conditions. Um, so the middle of the night, when it's your third case and you're totally asleep, the, the, the assistant who you have doesn't know the drill. Um, it would be the, and, and a patient where the positioning is very tough. You know, sometimes you have to pull a side viewing scope to go and look because of superior recess and you're going on D1 to D2 and you can barely see the lesion. You know, that'll tell you that you may not want to run rush into doing this. I'm trying to give you kind of things that would, would deter me from doing it. As a rule, I'll end up doing it because usually they'll tell me, oh, Dr. Barker, you're the expert. Aren't you going to do something? You know, and so on. So I end up doing it. But I think it's very, very important. You cannot bring your ego to the scope when you're scoping a patient, particularly in the acute setting. You need to think about the patient and not your ego. And sometimes it's not the same thing. Patient takes precedence. Notable and quotable. I appreciate your saying that. Absolutely. And so, uh, and, and I think, and I respect people who will back off. However, have a game plan. And if you feel that there's a need that you were not able to fulfill, make sure that that is addressed in a, in a finite way, in a timely fashion. Okay. So having said this, um, I, I would usually go ahead and all cases where I feel there are adherent clots, I will go ahead and do four quadrant epi and cheese wire and, and deal with what's beneath it because I feel that, the, the, uh, and again, the data is not clear, but I'm comfortable doing that and I'm comfortable defending that uh, to the patient, to the family, uh, and, and, to, and to myself when I go to bed at night. Okay. Uh, this is a little out of the scope, but do you typically, are you going to, are you biopsying for H. pylori yeah. at this right. time? Yeah. So I always do. You are. Um, I, I have one patient who's who actually bled from biopsies to the point where they had to go to the ICU. It does happen, but it's very mm. unusual. And my concern for if you, what what are the what's your the pros and the cons? The the pros the, the cons are you're going to bleed. Well, okay. If the patient is on the antithrombotic and already you're kind of going in according to the new antithrombotic guidelines and so on, you don't want to look for trouble. That I accept. Although we do biopsies on anti upper upper G-scope biopsies according to guidelines are acceptable, but maybe not with INR sky high and with the DOACs. Who knows where you're at? Okay. So that I'll accept. Although even then I do it. If it bleeds a little bit, I just clip it and, and that's it. And I'll tell you why. Because my concern is there are a number of follow-up data that suggest that in fact the patient was never followed up on had an ulcer, we know that they have an ulcer, it's malpractice not to check for HP, and you know that in patients who have HPs and bleed from ulcers, the chances are that they will re-bleed, and when they re-bleed, the presenting symptom will be the actual bleed. There'll be no upset stomach, burning, dyspepsia, and so on. So, uh, and, and this is not right. This is really, really not right. So from my point of view, the risk of bleeding from a biopsy in acute context is so low that the risk of losing the patient to follow up and the patient coming back in with more is higher, and that's why I would go ahead and biopsy. But again, I respect people who don't feel comfortable doing that, but if that's the case, make sure that you realize that the patient's gonna have to come back, and when the patient comes back, 
outside the acute context of a, a upper GI bleed, you need to make sure that they've been off the PPI for at least 10 days uh, and, and that yet yeah, they've had time to heal their whatever bleeding lesion, if it's a peptic acid peptic lesion, that you're able to time the whole thing. It gets quite complicated. The last thing I would say about that, don't forget that there's anywhere from a uh, up to a 55% false negative rate when you're testing for HP in the acute context of a bleed. And don't ask me why, but that's true for biopsying. It's true even for fecal tests, for serology and, and fecal tests uh, as well. I don't know why it's not clear, but the data were very good. We had done looked at 5,000 patients from a number, a number of diagnostic studies. So a negative test for HP in the acute context of a bleed does not is not good enough. You need to bring the patient back and test them again subsequently. Okay. Okay, perfect. So now let's say in this case, you know, we saw the uh, we saw the clot, the endoscopist was not comfortable uh, doing a snare and taking off and giving epi. So they just they tried to wash the clot off, it didn't come off, so they just kinda took a step back, took biopsies for H pylori and got out. I guess the question then becomes if this is a what what happens I guess from a standpoint of a of, of PPIs like how do you I guess because right. this would be so technically considered it's a high risk a P, group it's transition risk group being it's a high risk lesion which you can treat solely by PPI so it's 72 hours of PPI high dose mm-hmm. high dose that's like religion eh I mean it's uh, some people believe in high dose some people believe in less and the data are actually pretty good for both. I think the highest, best quality data are are with the high dose, 80 and 8 per hour for three days. But I accept that intermittent dosing has been shown to be very good as well. And you may want to give 40 twice a day IV or three times a day IV. In some places, they've given oral routes, but then we get into the issue of uh, some other technical issues uh, related to physiology, gastric physiology, which I'll leave out. So uh, you can use the high dose or the intermittent dosing for three days. That's fine. In that patient, that's how you would treat the patient. The only other thing I would tell you is that in usually I don't do a second look. Second look has not been shown to be terribly helpful. But in this case here, we don't know what's going on beneath it. I probably would have another look at some point in time, make sure uh, I see what's going on in, in that area. Uh, because you haven't exposed the area beneath it. I want to make sure that what, what is going on. And again, we don't routinely do second look. There's a meta-analysis that, that we had done actually that show that there's no, in the area of high-dose PPI, that you don't need to. But if you haven't seen well the area, I think that's not an unreasonable reason to have another look. When is debatable? Can, right. can you break down real quick one more time just the progression? I know some of the data talked about continuous and then intermittent and then oral we get a lot of questions about okay. that. Okay, so the, the best data are for 80 bolus followed by 8 per hour times 72 hours. The biological rationale is that it presumably helped the pH helps a number of things, including platelet aggregation, healing, and then actually uh, clotting factors and so on. It's not clear. It's not clear at all. But it's works and it's been shown in randomized trials repeatedly, repeatedly. Cochrane meta-analyses updated true in every case. The actual best studies that were done were double-blind randomized studies with blinding because it was the companies that wanted to get their product approved, so they had the money to do the blinding. The more recent studies, which are now old as well, of, of intermittent dosing were not done by companies. Why would they risk you know, uh, challenging the higher dose that they were giving? So in fact, many of those were not blinded studies, and that makes it a lesser level of um, uh, of evidence, although still very good, still a number of them, and Cochrane has looked at it and and, and shown um, uh, rigorous Leontiadis did the Cochrane meta-analysis and update and showed that it's acceptable as well. So you can really do one or the other, but if you're asking which I do, I use the 88 per hour. You could, if you argue with that, the two things you can argue with are side effects 
which we know from the uh, PPIs in the ICU randomized trials have no real side effects. It's no no increase in intubation, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, no increase in the cardiac issues, no increase in C. diff, at least in the hospital setting. Um, and then the other would be cost. And we've actually done budget impact analysis showing that it's absolutely minimal, particularly the PPI cost, at least in North America today, particularly compared to the huge cost of keeping patients in longer and so on and so forth. So uh, to me, the, the, it's high-dose uh, IV, uh, high-dose for three days. But again, intermittent is, is acceptable. The and oral is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. So there are a little bit of older studies, and they typically out of India. And if you read it, it'll tell you yes. But the, it turns out the parietal cell mass of people who live in India is a little bit lower. So so probably the oral delivery was sufficient enough to be able to have the same effect as what an IV dosing would do, amongst other things. There's a whole slew of uh, generalizability issues related to giving, for example, uh, 40, I think it was 40 BID for five days that they had used. Um, and, and then uh, Lauren Lane actually did the uh, oral equivalent study to see how high you can you have to give uh, a PPI in order to get a high pH. And it turns out you have to give it, I think, five times a day and so on, which has not been done clinically, you know, in studies, etc. So I wouldn't go the oral route, to be honest with you at this point. I'd stick to the IV uh, as such. I think it's safer based on the available data. That may change in time. So an important clarification in an era where we're always getting pressure to decrease the LOS. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. And, and, and sure. Yeah, so I know because then, so that's one issue. Now the, the duration, so it takes three days to go from high-risk lesion to a low-risk lesion. That we know from observational studies, three Asian studies that did this on poor patients who actually agreed to be scoped every day after endoscopic therapy, believe it or not. And, and as we know that that's progression, um, I could tell you anecdotally that in uh, South Africa for the one of the PPI randomized trials that I partake, partook in, a patient was discharged himself after the second day and died of hemorrhage at home. Of course, I don't like, I, I always preach evidence-based and then I'm giving you anecdotes. Uh, but, but I think that right now, the data is three days. We've discussed it repeatedly in the uh, in the guidelines, not just the ACG guidelines, but other guidelines as well. And there's just no data to support sending patients home earlier. And I think, to me, there's a lot of other things that we do on the ward, which are probably less cavalier than that. And I would think I would try and defend the patient with the available data uh, on hand. You can make exceptions to that. But if it's a high-risk lesion and that you've had to do endoscopic therapy, we still consult in our center I see you for the first 24 hours and then send the patient off to the floor for a full 48 hours. And then if, they're allow, if, if the condition allows them to, they then go home after that for the remainder of PPI oral treatment. I appreciate the discussion and clarification. And again, for the listeners, just this, this is post-endoscopic. This is all post-successful endoscopic therapy. Although what you were asking here was a deer and clot, so it doesn't fit, but we'll forget about that because that's the exception, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, perfect. And then you, we, you said, um, I guess after those three days, uh, it sounds like out of the guidelines sort of suggest two weeks. Right, right, uh, right, right, right. Okay. All <laughs> right. So sue me. It wasn't my idea. We've, we've had it before. I have to ask. There is one ask. Korean study with 180 something patients that looked at after the three days IV high dose, patients who had raw call over six went home and were randomized to double, you have to follow me here, from day three to day 14, double oral PPI dosing versus single PPI dosing, and then they were all treated the same way, and they found that there was less re-bleeding in those patients, although no difference in mortality. Mortality you wouldn't expect because it's so unusual uh, for the small numbers in that RCT. Based on that one study, we recommend double PPI dosing discharge for the first two weeks in patients who are high risk as defined by rock all over six. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the, I, now, I know what you're going to tell me. Yeah, but Dr. Barkin, all my patients go home on double dose regardless, you know. Well, the data don't support that. What am I supposed to tell you? It's, uh, you know, um, I think that what the data suggests, it's not great data. It's not randomized that I know of, but uh, is more the duration. So for duty ulcers, we usually take four weeks. Um, there's some data to suggest one week is enough if you do HP treatment right away, but that complicates things. Four weeks for duty ulcer, eight weeks for gastric ulcer. The only area which I think you can generalize and say that you should need a prolonged double-dose oral PPI use is for bleeding esophagitis. We know that those C and DLA classification required a lot of pH suppression. And anecdotally, we know that more and more patients are actually being diagnosed with bleeding esophagitis as a cause of bleeding. So those patients, I would have no trouble telling you it's not completely directly evidence-based, but having a double oral PPI daily dose. Other patients, probably single doses is sufficient in the majority of cases. And you think in two weeks, I feel like a lot, I see a lot of... A lot of eight-weekers who say, you know, keep them on double dose yeah, so, until you do you that know, next scope in eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, so you can if you want to, but I don't think the data support that. And I certainly say mm-hmm. two weeks and then on single oral daily dose. And then don't forget that if you're going to do HP testing, they then need to be off PPI for, for hopefully 10 days before you scope them. So you need to kind of plan all that uh, as such. Um, then we go into, we're not going to go into the today. You didn't invite me to discuss this, but, you know, the PPI side effect profile. Uh, we could discuss but no we will not go into this just to say that recurrent C. diff yes low magnesium yes interstitial nephritis yes the rest no period I I won't go into the details of it but I'll take on anybody evidence based wise with regards to the data there that's that's another podcast however the lesser the better because there's so much inappropriate use so we all agree on that uh, I appreciate that because that's a soapbox issue for me on rounds and as Schumann knows, I give that I give that core lecture to the fellows here at the GI program at Emory every year. This is yeah. like we talk about the same thing. So, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. And depends who you are. I, I know we're running late on the thing. You're, you're going to kill me here, but you invited me. It's your fault. Um, you know, we actually did. We actually did clinical scenarios to. to uh, family medicine residents, intro medicine residents, and GI residents. We gave them clinical scenarios where it was clear they should not give a PPI, clear they should give one because uh, we know the patient has bled and has to go back on an ASA, for example. It's malpractice not to, and then intermediate. And what you would think is the case. The, 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 the GI, PPIs to everybody all the time. Thank you. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. The uh, family medicine, never a PPI. It causes instant death. And, and the... And the um, and, and intro medicine, somewhere in between the two with a slant towards not using PPIs, sadly, when they're clearly indicated. So again, the message is it probably side effect profile is probably totally overblown into false fears. However, um, no question, you should use it appropriately, and it's grossly overused. I completely agree with that. Okay, I close my soapbox on that. Yeah, I know. So we are running late on time, but I wanted to, I mean, I did want to get to, I, maybe I'll say, I'll, I'll just skip the details of the case. Basically, it was going to be older lady, you know, has like atrial fibrillation on anticoagulation, comes in sick, you know, like blood pressure 90s over 60, she's tachycardic, she gets a scope, um, she ends up having this oozing lesion, okay, you treat it successfully with Gold Pro, put her on PPI, and then... She rebleeds. Yeah. Um, the que- and then you know because I have a I'm always uh, this question about okay you know you go back in for a scope you know when is over the scope clip something that you 
attempt, you know, when do you do HEMA spray? Okay. Or if you, if okay, so let you me, can't do those things, yeah, what do you do? If yeah. you'll allow me, I will answer a couple of quick things that you asked. No, okay? <laughs> like, uh, okay, basically, okay. Uh, go, go ahead. First of all, PPI pre-endoscopy, not clear. Probably no role to play. It doesn't improve outcomes. And it's, although it's not terribly costly, but the data aren't great, very important. Stabilize your patient before you scope them. The timing shows even in high-risk patients that they can wake up to 24 hours. Recent data out of Hong Kong, average of 10 hours versus 24 hours, no difference in clinical outcomes between the patients, especially the sick patients. Those are the ones you want to jump on. Those are the ones you should stabilize even more than the others because providing earlier endoscopic therapy just puts the patient at risk with a U-shaped mortality curve in ASA 3 to 5 in observational studies, number one. Number two, promotility. Promotility, absolutely very little to lose. Forget about uh, um, uh, everything other than erythromycin. It's been, the others have not been well studied. Erythromycin, 250, 45 minutes before you go in, decreases uh, the amount of blood you'll find, improves visualization, and decreases by half. You have to follow me here. The need for repeating an endoscopy to find a bleeding lesion that you couldn't see because of blood that was in the stomach. So give it, but don't forget it prolongs QT, and, and so you need to do an ECG beforehand. Rebleeding. So the management of rebleeding is the following. We, there's no question in patients who rebleed, we recommend repeat endoscopic therapy. You'll have a whole bunch of patients that you're going to be able to subsequently adequately uh, stop the bleeding for. So that should be the first part. If you've used thermal on the first part, and that the patient bleeds and you bring them back again a second time, we suggest, this is anecdotal, but probably not doing again thermal because there's this increased signal of potential perforation. So be aware of that. However, do not have a big ego. I bring back the ego thing again. Do not feel that a patient, that you have to treat all these patients. A massive, massive uh, bleeding lesion may not be amenable to endoscopic therapy. You need to recognize that and you need to be ready to ask your friendly interventional radiologist to help you, or depending on the availability, I guess surgeons as well, although the people going to surgery would be very few. Let me finish by talking about the over-the-scope clip. So the over-the-scope clip. One good study, small study published a few years ago in Gastro 2018, I think, that clearly showed that as for refractory bleeding patients, yes, it was better than uh, what was clips and injection, and uh, that was well done. I think there's no problem there, no improvement in other outcomes other than rebleeding, but the, 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 it was a small study, and that was fine. There have since been four studies that have looked at overscope clip as primary therapy, primary therapy of endoscopic, uh, of, of um, non-variceal uh, uh, lesions. And all of the two of them have not been fully published at this point in time. Two are fully published, one by um, uh, in, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology a few years ago, and another just these, this year in gut. The problem is that they all have methodological issues. Uh, in one case, a very high risk of bleeding in the control group. In another, a high proportion of larger lesions that by sadly, was randomized in the control group rather than the uh, in intervention group that used the CLIP. So we, have we did not feel comfortable. Uh, we had access to three of those four primary intent of overscope CLIP for bleeding to look at. We did not feel comfortable recommending it as a primary therapy. The other reasons are it's probably not that hard to use, but not many people have experience using it, number one. And number two, the cost. The cost as well. Uh, it, it's it will prevent rebleeding. Yes, absolutely. But 
if it presents rebleeding, if it prevents rebleeding, not that much more than than other approaches that are a lot cheaper, and maybe not for the U.S., but in other places in the world, there's a huge difference in price as well. So for those reasons, we did not recommend it. So my response to you is over the scope clip, yes, for refractory bleeding, maybe for the occasional rare situation as a primary, but not ready for prime time. In my humble personal evidence-based view, with regards to uh, a primary source for non-varicell bleeding, I think I'll stop there. That was a that was a fantastic way to finish on all the high points. Um, I feel like we've kept you too long. But there was like, man, you you really covered uh, an incredible amount of, of ground uh, in the time that we gave you. So, uh, folks, the Dr. Alan Barkun, um, I wanted to see: is there any way for our listeners to to follow you? Like, do you have a website or do you? Unfortunately, have a, I'm on Twitter, Twitter, but I try and avoid it. Uh, I'm not good on Twitter, so I'm, I, I, I won't even give you this. Um, yeah, I mean, if, uh, um, if they look at any of the publications, my contact information is there through my university and so on. Uh, I do not have any other media, social media presence except on Twitter, uh, but I'm not great at using Twitter, to be honest with you. And I respect people who use it so much because I feel totally paralyzed. I don't have time I, I, or, or I don't know how to use it properly. Probably a mix of both. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, and uh, catch you guys later. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing. Not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily say or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.